Howdy, and welcome to the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, where we saddle up and ride hell for leather into the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm your host, Paul Bishop. So far, our Six-Gun Justice Podcast World Wide West Tour has taken us to Mexico and Germany, where we explored the indigenous Western novels, films, and comics of those countries, along with their prolific indigenous Western wordslingers, most of whom have never set foot on American soil, let alone traveled west of the Mississippi. But even though indigenous Westerns from other countries are mostly unknown in America, they are true Westerns in every sense, and we are missing out if we don't spend time learning more about them. Today's tour stop is part one of our ride across the wide open ranges of Australia, where the Western has long found a home and has been linked to many indigenous experiences. Joining me today, wearing a pair of wombat chaps, which is a fashion statement I usually make, is my trail partner and co-host, Tim DeForest. Hey friend, how are you? I'm doing great. I always enjoy taking part in your podcast. I appreciate you asking me. And actually, they're duck-billed platypus chaps. (laughs) Uh, okay, well, as long as they're not kangaroo chaps, otherwise you'd be jumping around the whole podcast. Mm-hmm. And as far as this goes, I don't think it's my podcast anymore. I think you're a regular part of this as a co-host, and I've even added you to our website. I appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate you hanging out with me again, as we've been receiving quite a bit of positive feedback from listeners who've been enjoying the various stops on our World Wide West tour. Well, I'm glad, because I find it fascinating. I'm discovering a whole new treasure trove of Westerns I never knew existed. And the indigenous wordslingers producing those Westerns in countries such as Mexico and Germany, as we've discussed in recent episodes, and Australia, which we're going to discuss today, were extremely prolific. And that's where there is a bit of a drawback, since most of the Westerns we've talked about on our previous tour stops have no English translations. Unless you are a linguist who speaks a myriad of languages, you're going to miss out on a whole lot of blazing six-gun action. True, but we're going to eliminate that issue today as we travel to the land down under, where English is the common language. Even if they do speak it with an Aussie accent. Sure, but that's not an issue on the printed page. However, you can hear the Aussie accent talking about Westerns in our next episode, World Wide West Tour Australia Part 2, when I'll be talking with Australian pulp maven Andrew Nett an expert on the Australian pulp publishers responsible for printing hundreds, if not thousands, of indigenous westerns from the 1940s to the 2000s. But before we get to the second part of our Australian tour stop, we'd better get on with part one. You're absolutely right, which means it's time to tie your kangaroo down, mate, put some shrimp on the barbie while we stampede the cattle and get to lassoing our feature. While many of the Westerns we've been discussing on our World Wide West tour are virtually unknown to many of our listeners, I'd like to start our ride across the Australian outback talking about a Hollywood Western made in Australia that most will likely be familiar with, Quigley Down Under, released in 1990. It's one of my favorite Western films. Mine too. And in my opinion, it's also the film in which Tom Selleck finally established himself as a movie star. I agree. He'd obviously starred as a lead in a number of previous feature films, including the adventure film High Road to China, which I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. the detective movie Lassiter, and the sci-fi-based Runaway. But in Quigley Down Under, this lead role fits Selleck like a bespoke Savile Row suit. Is there such a thing as a Savile Row Western getup? 
Definitely not, but you get my point. <laughs> I, I do, and I agree with you. Selleck had a few made-for-TV westerns under his gun belt by the time he took on Quigley, including the Sackets and the Shadow Riders, as well as making appearances in western TV series going as far back as 1969 with a bit role in an episode of Lancer. But in retrospect, all of them seemed to be a warm-up for Quigley Down Under. And like so many other Hollywood productions, the path to Selleck being cast as Quigley had its share of twists and turns, starting with the fact Quigley Down Under was originally slated to star Steve McQueen after he finished filming The Hunter in 1980. However, McQueen's health deteriorated shortly after making The Hunter, so Quigley was sent off to languish in the Hollywood hell known in the industry as Turnaround. Most films never make it back from being put in Turnaround. But Quigley was such a strong concept, it was revived several times throughout the 1980s, with various stars tapped for the lead, including Clint Eastwood. Harrison Ford was also offered the lead role, but turned it down because he considered it too visibly similar to Indiana Jones. Which is interesting, as Tom Selleck was the original choice to play Indiana Jones, but had to turn it down due to filming Magnum P.I., which was still a problem for Selleck when he was first offered the role in 1985, he was again still filming Magnum P.I. at the time, with no way out of his contract. Sort of like Pierce Bronson when he was first offered the role of James Bond, but couldn't get out of his contract tying him to the role on Remington Steel. Absolutely, and despite the contractual setback, Brosnan did eventually get his shot at James Bond. And when it came to Quigley Down Under, so did Selleck. When Magnum P.I. concluded its long run in 1988, Selleck quickly contacted the producers and asked if the role of Quigley was still available. It was, and he accepted it. On the strength of having Selleck as the star, the producers were able to secure financing along with the talents of rising Australian director Simon Windsor, who was fresh off the success of directing the four-part TV miniseries Lonesome Dove. And that was a great pedigree. I mean, Lonesome Dove to Quickly Down Under, that seems unnatural that he's going to do a great job with Quigley. I agree. For those who may not have seen the popular film, Quigley is a master sniper, who uses a specially modified rifle that enables him to shoot accurately at extraordinary distances. The action ignites when Quigley comes across a help-wanted ad placed by a rich Australian rancher named Elliot Marsden, a role performed with his patented brand of sinister glee by the late Alan Rickman. Marsden needs a man with Quigley's unique shooting skills to travel to Australia to rid his ranch of vermin. Quigley replies using only four words, M. Quigley, 900 yards, written on a copy of the advertisement, which he has used for a long-distance target practice session, resulting in six closely spaced bullet holes. Arriving in Australia, then part of the British Empire, Quigley gets into a fight with Marston's ranch hands as they try to force Crazy Cora, played with fragile ferocity by Laura San Giacomo, onto their wagon along with a number of other soiled doves being taken out to Marston's outback station. When Temper's cool and Quigley identifies himself, he, along with Crazy Cora and the other women, make the journey to Marston's ranch. There, at Marston's request, Quigley demonstrates his formidable shooting skills. Impressed, Marston informs Quigley that his job is not to cull the kangaroo population, but to eradicate the increasingly elusive indigenous aborigines who Marston despises. Quigley is highly offended and turns down the offer by angrily throwing Marston out of his own house. This does not end well as Marston's men beat Quigley and Cora, who tries to come to Quigley's aid, unconscious and dump them in the outback with no water and little chance of survival. 
Complications then ensue, as you like to say, when Quigley and Cora are rescued by Aborigines and begin to plot not only their revenge, but also to stop Marston's plans for slaughtering the indigenous population. There are some excellent performances in this film, and the pace never lags. Some of the set pieces are unique to the outback landscape, while others are pure Hollywood western, especially the final shootout between Quigley and Marsden that has a great last line twist in its tail, as satisfying an ending as any western fan could hope for. For me, Quigley succeeds most as a light romance amidst the traditional shoot 'em up scenario. In fact, the love story is what drives it along and provides its most special moments. In some ways, the film reminds me of the classic novel, The Cowboy and the Cossack, which transports the traditional Western cattle drive tropes into a unique journey across the Siberian wilderness, with the czarist soldiers filling in for the Indians as the Cossacks and cowboys bond. I can see the comparison works. For anybody who hasn't read The Cowboy and the Cossack, do so immediately. It remains in my top three favorite Western novels of all time. And I've never known anyone who read the novel to argue with your assessment. As for a final note on Quigley Down Under, a few critics have disparaged the film as a politically correct revisionist Western, wherein an American witnesses injustices on aboriginals in a foreign land and is outraged to action despite the utter mistreatment of native Indians during the same period back home. But while some comparisons can obviously be made between the treatment of indigenous peoples in both countries, in my opinion, this is nothing more than grandstanding on the part of critics trying to make bricks without straw to support their own political agenda. It's a specious argument. The film is poignant in its treatment of the aborigines, but Quigley is a man given to stand up and do the right thing no matter where he is, Wyoming or Fremantle. And there is nothing on the screen to indicate any kind of political statement beyond being a rousing Western adventure. Nor is Quigley's character burdened with being the white savior of the indigenous people. That's absolutely right. If anything, it's the Aborigines who save Quigley and Cora so they can fight and love another day. Quigley Down Under was the first of three collaborations, all Westerns, between Tom Selleck and director Simon Windsor. The other two, Crossfire Trail in 2001, and Monty Walsh in 2003, were made-for-TV movies. Simon Windsor also directed another Western with Australian connections, Lightning Jack, a 1994 Western comedy written by and starring Australian Paul Hogan, a well-known commodity after starring as Crocodile Dundee. The film also featured Cuba Gooding Jr. and Beverly D'Angelo. Hogan plays Lightning Jack Kane, a long-sighted Australian outlaw in the American West, with his horse mate, after the rest of his gang is killed in a robbery gone wrong, Jack survives only to read of the events in the newspaper that he was a nobody compared to the others in the gang. Annoyed at not being recognized as an outlaw, Jack attempts a robbery by himself, but when things go wrong, he ends up taking young mute Ben Doyle, Cuba Gooding Jr., as a hostage. He later discovers that, tired of never having been treated with respect due to his disability and his race, Ben wishes to join him on the Alhu Trail. And complications ensue. As always. Filming of Lightning Jack took place in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Tucson, Page, Arizona, Moab, Utah, and Colorado, with some interior shot at Movie World Studios on the Gold Coast in Australia. Director Simon Windsor says making the film was a logistical nightmare because there were so many other Westerns filming on the same locations at the same time, such as Wyatt Earp, Geronimo, City Slickers 2, and Tombstone. Despite its pedigree, Lightning Jack did not even come close to matching the popularity of Quigley Down Under. 
In fact, Lightning Jack made a number of worst Westerns of all time lists, garnering an anemic 7% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Still, the film has to be admired as it takes a concerted effort on the part of everyone involved to hit the Hall of Shame mark of an under 10% Rotten Tomatoes approval rating. (laughs) Making a far better impression from 12 years earlier in 1982 was the Australian Western drama film The Man from Snowy River. Based on Australian bush poet, journalist, and author Banjo Patterson's poem of the same name, The Man from Snowy River starred Kirk Douglas in a dual role as brothers Harrison and Spur, who haven't spoken in years. The film co-starred Tom Burlinson, Siegfried Thornton, and Chris Haywood. Both Burlinson and Thornton later reprised their roles in the 1988 sequel, The Man from Snowy River 2 which was the film's original Australian title that was later changed to Return to Snowy River when the film was released in the United States by Walt Disney Pictures. As for the dramatic plot, Tom Burlinson portrays Jim Craig, a young man who has lived his first 18 years in the mountains of Australia on his father's farm. The death of his father forces him to go to the lowlands to earn enough money to get the farm back on its feet. Kirk Douglas plays his two roles as twin brothers seamlessly. One of the brothers was Jim's father's best friend and the other is the father of Jessica, the girl Jim wants to marry. The dynamics cause a 20-year-old feud to re-erupt, catching Jim and Jessica in the middle of it when Jim is accused of letting a prize stallion loose. And those pesky complications ensue. Too right, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Australia gets pretty close to its own Jesse James in the form of Ned Kelly, a desperado whose legend is woven into the Australian zeitgeist. Born in 1854, Edward Ned Kelly was an Australian bushranger, outlaw, gang leader, and convicted police murderer. One of the last bushrangers, he is known for wearing a suit of bulletproof armor during his final shootout with the police. He was born in the then British colony of Victoria as the third of eight children to Irish parents. His father, a transported convict, died shortly after serving a six-month prison sentence, leaving Kelly, then age 12, as the eldest male in the household. The Kellys were a poor selector family who saw themselves as downtrodden by the squatocracy and as victims of persecution by the Victoria police. While a teenager, Kelly was arrested for associating with Bush Ranger Harry Power and served two prison terms for a variety of offenses, the longest stretch being from 1871 to 1874 on a conviction of receiving a stolen horse. He later joined the Greta Mob, a group of bush rustlers known for stock theft. A violent confrontation with a policeman occurred at the Kelly's family's home in 1878, and Kelly was indicted for attempted murder. Fleeing to the bush, Kelly vowed to avenge his mother, who was imprisoned for her role in the incident. After Kelly and his younger brother Dan and two associates, John Byrne and Steve Hart, gunned down three policemen, the government of Victoria proclaimed them outlaws. Kelly and his gang eluded the police for two years, thanks in part to the support of an extensive network of sympathizers. The gang's crime spree included the killing of Aaron Sherritt, a sympathizer turned police informer. In a manifesto letter, Kelly, denouncing the police, the Victorian government, and the British Empire, set down his own account of the events leading up to his being branded an outlaw. Demanding justice for his family and the rural poor, he threatened dire consequences against those who defied him. In 1880, when Kelly's attempt to derail and ambush a police train failed, he and his gang, dressed in armor fashioned from stolen plow mold boards, engaged in a final gun battle with the police at Glen Rowan. Kelly, the only survivor, was severely wounded by police fire and captured. 
Despite thousands of supporters attending rallies and signing a petition for his reprieve, Kelly was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death by hanging, which was carried out at the old Melbourne jail. Historian Jeffrey Searle called Kelly and his gang the last expression of the lawless frontier in what was becoming a highly organized and educated society, the last protest of the mighty Bush now tethered with iron rails to Melbourne and the world. In the century after his death, Kelly became a cultural icon, inspiring numerous works in the arts and popular culture, and is the subject of more biographies than any other Australian. You know, like Jesse James and Billy the Kid, Kelly continues to cause division in his homeland. Some celebrate him as Australia's equivalent of Robin Hood, while others regard him as a murderous villain, undeserving of his folk hero status. Journalist Martin Flanagan wrote, What makes Ned a legend is not that everyone sees him the same, is that everyone sees him, like a bushfire on the horizon casting its red glow into the night. And here's the thing. Works about Ned Kelly aside, Western movies with an Aussie pedigree hardly even register on the scale of indigenous Australian Westerns. The cowboy heart of the Outback belongs to an ambitious publishing company that stampeded onto the scene in the early 50s. Founded in 1953 by Jack Atkins, a former secretary of the New South Wales Democratic Labor Party, the Cleveland Publishing Company joined a long list of established publishing houses trying to meet the Australian public's demand for affordable reading material. By the early 90s, it was the last publisher of its type still standing. To get his company off the ground, Atkins assessed his wide array of contacts who worked for printers and other publishers who certainly helped the fledgling company. Atkins' contacts also included printing supervisor Wally Simpson, who he hired as Cleveland's business manager. This was an unusual choice, as Simpson's experience was as a printer, not a publisher or even somebody with editorial experience. However, Atkins saw Simpson, who had a huge reputation as the boss of numerous major printing outlets, including a successful newspaper, as a man who understood good business and how to establish a positive bottom line. Simpson, a tall and physically impressive individual who was known to tear phone books in half well into his 70s, was reluctant at first. However, Atkins was adamant he wanted Simpson on board and kept offering him more and more money until Simpson made the leap of quitting his lucrative position and joined Atkins' new venture. Other employees were not as quick to sign up with the upstart publisher. Still, Atkins and Simpson somehow managed to print and distribute 25,000 copies of their first title. It was three long months of waiting before they were finally able to assess the return rates on the books and tally the sales figure. The problem was, there was no returns. All 25,000 copies had sold out. Cleveland had made its mark and employees stampeded to get in on what was clearly a gold mine. Cleveland began producing their distinctive line of inexpensively produced digest-sized novels in late 1954. At that time, the line consisted of a mixture of crime stories and westerns. However, starting with their 600th offering, the company switched exclusively to westerns and changed their name to Cleveland Westerns to solidify their brand. Cleveland's 98-page digest-sized westerns clearly proved to be the company's biggest source of income and popularity, partly based on the fact that they were sold at a price point that significantly undercut their competitors. By the end of 1956, Cleveland had created dozens of umbrella titles under which they published an ever-expanding range of Western fiction. These included American Dollar Westerns, Arizona Western, Bighorn Western, Chisholm, Coronado, Fighting Western, Iron Horse Western, and more. At its peak, 
Cleveland was publishing more than 18 Westerns every month with distribution up to 50,000 copies. The Cleveland Westerns featured a world as rough and tough as the real world can be, but it was also a world where values like decency and courage prevailed. Cleveland Westerns provided solace, encouragement, and entertainment for uncountable readers, often men who were down on their luck and needed a reminder that you could still win if you were decent and had enough guts. Cleveland's biggest advantage, however, was their incredibly prolific stable of wordslingers who were almost exclusively Australian. These kangaroo cowboys each churned out their novella-length stories at an average rate of three per month, a schedule that was needed to keep up with the Australian readers' voracious demands. Hidden behind such pseudonyms and publishing house names as Sheldon B. Cole, Chad Denver, Emerson Dodge, Marshall Grover, and Brett Waring were men like Roger Green, Keith Hetherington, Richard Wilkes, Paul Willihan, and Leonard Mears. Sydney-born Leonard Frank Mears published around 750 novels, mostly westerns. His best-known works feature Texas troubleshooters Larry and Stretch. Before starting to write, Mears served in the Royal Australian Air Force, worked in the Department of Immigration, and sold shoes. In the mid-1950s, he bought a typewriter to write radio and film scripts. Inspired by the success of local paperback westerns, he wrote Trouble Town, which was published by Cleveland in 1955. His tenth yarn, Drift, published in 1956, introduces wildly popular characters Larry Valentine and Stretch Emerson. In 1960, he created a brief but memorable series of westerns set in and around the town of Bleak Creek. Four years later, he wrote The Night McLennan Died, which was published by Cleveland and became the first of more than 70 westerns to feature cavalryman turned manhunter Big Jim Rand. In mid-66, Mears left Cleveland to write exclusively for Horwitz, another major Australian publisher. Horwitz soon sold more than 30 of Mears' novels to Bantam Books for publication in the United States where, for legal reasons, the pseudonym Marshall Grover, which Mears had used extensively while writing for Cleveland, was changed to Marshall McCoy. For similar reasons, when published in America, his characters Larry and Stretch became Larry and Streak, and Big Jim Rand became Nevada Jim Gage. His Nevada Jim novels, published by Bantam as paperback originals, sport a great series of covers by legendary illustrator James Bama the man behind the coolest series of Doc Savage covers ever. As well as writing under pen names as Brett Waring and Kirk Hamilton, Keith Hetherington also worked as a television scriptwriter on such Australian TV shows as Homicide, Matlock Police, Division 4, Solo One, and Chopper Squad. He also published thrillers under his own name. Hetherington told Piccadilly Publishing founder David Whitehead, I always liked writing little vignettes trying to describe the action sequences I saw in a film or the Saturday afternoon serial at local cinemas. Then, when I was in my teens, I had an accident at work and spent a week at home recuperating. During that time, I read a story called Jailbreak Justice in a book of cowboy stories, and I thought I could write as good or better yarn. I filled a dozen or so pages in an exercise book, called it The Texan, and mailed it away. A couple of months later, I received a check for £6.15. shillings. After that, I began writing fairly regularly for Cleveland Publications, who wanted a regular supply of 40,000-word novels. Keith went on to pen hundreds of westerns. The figure varies between 600 and 1,000, under numerous house names, including the legendary Bannerman the Enforcer series, which has been republished digitally by Piccadilly Publishing and is available from Amazon. 
Des R. Dunn began writing westerns for Cleveland in the 50s. It's hard to be precise about how many westerns he wrote, but the best estimate is well over 400. He not only wrote prolifically, he was also a prolific user of pseudonyms, writing as Brett Iverson, Morgan Cole, Adam Brady, Matt Cregan, Gunn Holliday, Chad Denver, Walt Remwick, and possibly others. Dunn died in 2003. Welchman Philip Holden arrived in Australia in 1953. He worked first as a farmer and then from 1961 as a deer hunter in New Zealand. After returning to Australia in the late 1960s, he began penning westerns. By the time he left Australia again for New Zealand, this time permanently, he had written almost 50 novels for Cleveland Westerns. Like many of his contemporaries, he wrote under a range of pseudonyms. The ones we have identified include Lee Chandler, Cord McAllister, and Lee Holden. Holden died in 2005, still based in New Zealand, where he had been settled over 30 years. Born in 1930, Australian writer Paul Willihan grew up in Dalton, a country town in New South Wales, where his father was stationed as a mounted policeman. Blessed with a keen imagination, Willihan exhibited an aptitude for art from a young age, and immersed himself in the escapist fantasies of Depression-era Hollywood films, especially those starring Australian-born actor Errol Flynn, as well as newspaper comic strips and early Australian tabloid comics. His adolescent ambition to become a comic book artist, a career choice greeted with dismay by his parents, was driven in part by Silver Star in The Flame World, a majestic science fiction comic strip illustrated by Stanley Pitt, which appeared in Cindy's Sunday Sun and Guardian newspaper beginning in November 1946. Inspired by the strip, Wheelahan went to Sydney and sought out Pitt, who invited him to visit his studio. Eventually, in 1948, Pitt employed Wheelahan as an art assistant, assigning him to ink sections of the Yarmak Jungle King and Captain Power comics. It was the beginning of a lifelong friendship, one that would have enormous influences on Wheelahan's future career as a writer. After being hired by Cleveland as a prolific cover artist, Wheelahan began writing westerns for Cleveland in 1963. He was 33 years old at the time, which put him a good 20 years younger than almost all the other Cleveland wordslingers. Although he set most of his westerns in places like New Mexico, Texas, and Arizona, Wheelahan, like most of the indigenous western writers who were his peers, had never been to any of those places. He actually expressed concern that if he ever went to the real west, it would distort the west of the imagination he had created on the page. Having seen the bleached-out sky of the American west, along with its cacti and its waterholes, in movies and books, he believed he had a workable fantasy version enshrined in his head, and he wanted it to stay there. Wheelahan also found a way to write westerns actually set in Australia. He had lived in the sparse outback growing up, as well as in the more populated towns in New South Wales, which gave him an appreciation for the bush and its people. But when he was 21, his gambling winnings sent him on a trip to Kanamala in Queensland, which struck him at the time, the early 50s, as comparable to a wide-open western frontier town. During his three-week stay, he made an effort to get to know the people, such as the aboriginal stockmen with their whips and patch pockets, as well as spending time in the town's many saloons, which came complete with swinging bat-wing doors. Eventually, he assimilated his experiences there to write between 100 and 200 so-called kangaroo westerns set in Kanamala, claiming it as the only area of Australia to have a real influence on his western writing. Throughout the 1970s and the early 1980s, Wheelahan created and wrote a number of ongoing paperback series under his pseudonym E. Jefferson Clay. These include Benedict and Brazos, starring two brawling veterans from different sides of the American Civil War, 
and Savage, an amoral gunslinger whose exploits were rife with sex and violence. Reflecting the style of the grittier Western yarns popularized by the spaghetti Western movies of the 60s and 70s. Between 1963 and 1997, Wheelahan wrote more than 800 Westerns for Cleveland. Writing as Emerson Dodge, Wheelahan outsold all of his other alter egos and all of his contemporaries at the publishing house to become Cleveland's biggest seller. Everybody's Gunnin' for Dunn was one of Wheelahan's more memorable Westerns, as it starred many of the people who'd worked at Cleveland as lead characters, including writer Des Dunn, artist Stan Pitt, and publisher Les Atkins who had taken over publishing Cleveland Westerns from his father in the early 1970s. According to Wheelahan's daughter, Caitlin, her father was sadly forced to give up his writing career after he was diagnosed with early-onset dementia around 2010. Nevertheless, Wheelahan's creative legacy was duly acknowledged in 2017 when he received the Ledger of Honor Award in recognition for his outstanding contribution to Australian comic art. Wheelahan, who passed away in 2018, was a truly gifted storyteller who thrived in the egalitarian mediums of comic books and pulp fiction literature and enthralled generations of readers with his vivid imagination. While the heyday of Cleveland Westerns was in the 1950s before TV came to Australia, the company continued to thrive for another three decades. However, after years of successful distribution through U.S. outlets, the market for Westerns suddenly dried up. Later, distribution in New Zealand and other lucrative outlets, including the distribution of returned books from other markets in South Africa, followed the way of the West itself. Cleveland continued to publish in Australia, but eventually, as younger generations turned away from print and looked to electronic sources for their entertainment, Cleveland's 60 years as top publisher of Australian popular fiction was forced to close its doors due to financial difficulties. Frustratingly, Cleveland notoriously did not include publication dates in their books and rarely credited their cover artists. But the legacy of Cleveland's over 3,000 Western titles continues. In secondhand bookstores across Australia, Cleveland Westerns are sold and resold. They're sometimes tattered, glossy paper covers with their colorful illustrations of cowboys brandishing six guns and rifles and shootouts with villains of all sorts or riding horses across scorching deserts still attract the eye. The history of these Western adventures can be seen in the different prices as they continue to change hands, and when you peer inside the covers, you often find the names of several previous owners written in pen, then crossed out and replaced with new names. You'll also see the purple stamps of various secondhand bookstores, many of which are hundreds of kilometers apart, who lay claim to the books for a short time before they mosey off their shelves again to thrill new readers. The main appeal of Cleveland Westerns is that they are sentimental, escapist tales that follow classic storytelling traditions, melodramatic narratives with a cast of hard-nosed marshals, ruthless bounty hunters, and hard-scrabble ranchers battling outlaws, Indian raiders, and insurmountable odds. It's the good guys versus the bad. You can bet there's a shootout, an ambush, a damsel in distress, and loads of romance, but surprisingly, the hero doesn't always get the girl. Well, there's the clanging of the Chuck Wagon Triangle, partner, telling me it's time to wrap this episode up with some shootouts and shoutouts. Thanks for riding with me again, Tim. I have no doubt we'll be together moseying down the trail again very soon. It's been a blast as always, Paul. I'd like to give a shout-out to Piccadilly Publishing honcho Dave Whitehead, known to his many fans as best-selling Western wordslinger Ben Bridges, for letting me crib from his extensive research on a number of Western writers as I put together this episode.
Thanks to our Six Gun Justice Patreon subscribers for their one-time or monthly support. If you are so inclined, you can help cover the cost of the podcast by using the button at the top of our website, sixgunjustice.com. Prior Six Gun Justice episodes continue to be available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Next episode, we'll be continuing the World Wide West tour with part two of our stay in the Outback when I'll be joined by Australian pulp maven crocodile Andrew Nett. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and may all your trails be happy. Adios for now. I'm out of here. Let's ride.